Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. It's Kevin Canary, and today I am joined by my friends and colleagues, Ravi Ambani and Andrew Wishy. We're here to share some exciting news about a new book we wrote that you're going to want to get your hands on. Last year, the three of us met to prepare for the certifying exam in vascular surgery. To our surprise, the biggest struggle wasn't finding the time to study together or the fact that we were using virtual platforms. It was a lack of a single, high-quality, accurate, and affordable resource to help us dominate the oral boards. We searched everywhere and came up empty-handed. Then we had an idea. If we couldn't find what we were looking for, why not create it ourselves? So we did just that used it to pass our oral boards, and now we want to share it with you. The Vascular Surgery Oral Board Review has 60 of the highest yield scenarios in an easy-to-read question-and-answer format that highlights the most important clinical concepts, concise procedural descriptions, and common surgical complications that everyone should know about the field of vascular surgery. This book is intended for all audiences, including surgical trainees, practicing surgeons, interested medical students, or anyone who wants to have a collection of the most common vignettes in our specialty. Get ready for the book to drop on Amazon and the Behind the Knife premium page on March 1st. Until then, dominate the day. Welcome back to the UCLA Endocrine Surgery Behind the Knife podcast. I'm Rivka. I'm a PGY5 general surgery resident, and I'm here with the rest of my team who I'm about to introduce for the first great debate of UCLA Endocrine Surgery. I have Max Shum here. Max, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Max. I'm a third-year clinical resident. Um, I did two years of research in the endocrine surgery lab, and I'll be a future endocrine surgeon. I'm Vivek. I'm the current UCLA endocrine surgery fellow. Michael Yeh, faculty member. James Wu, also faculty. Masha Levitz, also faculty. All right, so our first debate point is minimally invasive parathyroidectomy versus floor gland exploration. Max, can you give us some background on this topic? Sure. Primary hyperparathyroidism is a condition where one or more of the four parathyroid glands may enlarge and produce excess parathyroid hormone, a hormone that normally controls calcium and bone metabolism. Excess production of parathyroid hormone results in high blood calcium levels as calcium is drawn out of the bones resulting in increased risk of osteoporosis, kidney stones, and many other symptoms. In the United States, the estimated incidence of primary hyperparathyroidism is 50 per 100,000 person years. It can occur at any age, but the great majority of cases occurs in uh, patients over the age of 50, with women twice as likely to be um, affected as men. 80 to 90% of patients may present with a solitary parathyroid adenoma and approximately 15% will present with hyperplasia or a double um, adenoma. On one side of the debate, we have Vivek and Michael talking about why we should perform a foregland exploration. And on the other side, we have Masha and James. All right, so let's start by defining these procedures. A foregland expiration is when we routinely look at all four parathyroid glands, regardless of what the imaging showed ahead of time. And then a minimally invasive parathyroidectomy is usually defined as a small incision with just a targeted exploration of the single parathyroid adenoma that was seen on preoperative imaging. 
Um, so a disclaimer at the beginning, I actually perform routine four with aspirations. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way that I train by Michael. Um, and I do think it has a lot of advantages. However, for the purposes of this debate, I'm happy to, um, to debate on the side of minimally invasive parathyroidectomy because there are actually times when I have this internal mo monologue, um, as I'm doing the procedure after removing a large parathyroid adenoma you know, do we really need to be looking at the other parathyroid glands, especially in a case where the thyroid maybe is inflamed with Hashimoto's, there's a little increased risk of bleeding, um, and we think we're, we're probably have already cured the patient. Uh, is it a good idea to be looking at the other parathyroid glands? So I think sort of as a general principle, the reason that minimally invasive parathyroidectomy is appealing is that less surgery is probably always better if the patient can be cured. So if the cure rate is going to be equivalent, um, then there's some advantage to stopping a surgery once the adenoma is removed in terms of potentially decreasing the operative time for the patient under anesthesia um, and then uh, minimizing potential complications of exploring the other side, even temporary hypoparathyroidism or recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, um, and then to not scar the other side. That's probably one of the big things that's discussed is if you do look at the other side, you create some scar tissue there. So if you ever had to reoperate, now that's a scarred field. Um, I think that there are some earlier studies that had suggested perhaps minimally invasive parathyroidectomy has a higher risk of recurrent disease, but that was when intraoperative parathyroid hormone monitoring was not routinely used. So I do think if you're going to do a minimally invasive parathyroidectomy, it has to be image guided and you have to have a good drop in the intraoperative PTH level and to be prepared to convert to a foregland expiration uh, if needed. And then the other point that I want to make is that I think our imaging has become very, very good, in particular 4D parathyroid CT. So before, when we had ultrasound, maybe with a Sestamibi, the sensitivity for multi-gland disease was you know, fairly low. Um, and so I think it was a little more likely if you were doing a minimally invasive focused parathyroidectomy, you actually did have additional glands that you didn't know about based on the preoperative imaging. I think now with 4DCT, the sensitivity is higher for multi-gland disease. It's still not perfect, it can be missed, but I think it's much less likely that if you do have, especially a 4DCT, that just shows a single target, it's concordant with your ultrasound findings, it is very, very likely you're gonna have a single adenoma and have cured the patient after a focused parathyroidectomy. That's right, Masha. And no matter what Dr. Ye and Vivek say, I think this literature is going to be on our side. Uh, so there's yes. a good, there was a recent paper published in Surgery uh, by Schneider et al. They looked at 1,000 cases from 2001, 2011. In this series, 85% of them were minimally invasive parathyroidectomy, so they're experiencing this. They found no difference in persistent disease or recurrent disease after follow-up and no difference in complications. Another study in... Uh, Annals of Surgical Oncology, a meta-analysis of 12,000 patients over 19 studies, again, showed that minimally invasive parathyroidectomy had less operative time, uh, less complications, similar recurrence rates. And finally, uh, another paper published in Annals of Surgery by Norlin et al. was a multi-center retrospective study, 5,000 patients, 1990-2013, followed for six years. Uh, so in this paper, there was a small difference in the per, uh, incidence of persistent disease. Minimally invasive, 2.7% still had high PTH calcium after surgery versus 1.7%. 
in the foregland exploration. But when they looked at the end of the follow-up, at the end of six years, that there was no difference uh, in long-term uh, persistence recurrence. And when they looked at the complications, they actually did find a difference where uh, only 0.4% of patients who had milli-invasive parathyroidectomy had a cervical hematoma requiring going back to the operating room versus 1.5% uh, in the foregland expiration. So you get the same uh, outcomes, less risk, less scarring, less operative time. So why would you ever do a foregland? Defend yourselves. Hey, uh, just for the audience, so the audience knows, this is a this is a kind of a foregland exploration shot here. So uh, <laughs> um, I'm gonna allow allow Vivek to start because I think he's had a fair amount of the Kool Aid already. <laughs> Thank you. So as James was saying, uh, this this paper by Olaf Norlin in 2015 did note a higher rate of persistence, uh, 2.7% for patients out of minimally invasive parathyroidectomy versus 1.7%. However, as Masha had mentioned, especially in the 1990s and in the earlier time period, all the same modalities that we have for localization did not exist. So the applicability of this entire paper and those findings to our current time period may or may not be the exact same. One thing that I think of, especially in terms of training, in my mind, I very much analogize the foregland exploration to the routine intraoperative cholangiogram. <laughs> doing an intraoperative cholangiogram every time when you're doing a cholecystectomy helps your future patient when you really need to do that cholangiogram and you're in a tough spot. When we do have to perform a foregland exploration for a patient, they are the direct beneficiary of all prior foregland explorations you've ever done in your career. And every foregland exploration you're doing is essentially doubling or quadrupling the number of parathyroidectomies or parathyroid evaluations that you have performed in your life. So I would create a slightly different statement as what Masha said. If you can perform a foregland exploration with the same rate of complications but a potentially higher cure rate, that would, of course, be beneficial. Great. Uh, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, we have these podcasts, and I know the audience wants to know the literature. That's important. Um, there are also layers and layers deeper than where the literature goes. Um, so uh, maybe to err on the philosophical side, um, a lot of, you know, Vivek made the excellent point that there, the imaging continues to evolve. And so some of these older papers rapidly go out of date. Um, furthermore, uh, I think we must discuss the end point for all of these papers, which is, is the calcium less than 10.5? Right? That's the definition of cure. But in your practice, you know, for the audience, it, that's not necessarily the only endpoint, right? And so I see parathyroid surgery as kind of a battle against ambiguity. And, you know, a lot of the folks in this room have operated with me. And whenever we're doing parathyroid surgery, we're like, well, this operation we're doing, it might be a limited exploration. It could cure the patient, but there's ambiguity. There's ambiguity in the operating room, and it may lead to ambiguity after you're done with the operation, uh, which causes a lot of confusion with respect to the patient and the endocrinologist. Um, so calcium grade less than 10.5, yes, is an important goal. But then there are all these weird outcomes that you get. You get somebody who starts out with a calcium of 10.5 and a PTH of 85, 
Then after surgery, the calcium is 10.2 and the PTH is 68. You know, are they completely cured? I guess they are. Then you've got another, another person coming in. The calcium is 10.1, the PTH now up to 126. And yeah, you correct the vitamin D. Uh, and there are all these weird outcomes that are also possible. So, uh, you know, my former fellows are going to, going to remember these, these things that I say uh, a lot of the time, which is that, um, I have often, in retrospect, uh, been regretful of not being sufficiently aggressive during parathyroid surgery, often, but rarely been regretful about being overly aggressive. Yeah, and, and yes. And so the, for, for the attending surgeons listening, they're like, oh, but hypoparathyroidism, yeah, there is hypoparathyroidism. I don't think we've ever had it. Um, and I don't say that to be one of those obnoxious people who says they don't have complications. So they do have complications. This just happens not to be one of them. Now, how can you avoid hypoparathyroidism? It's pretty easy. Leave a remnant, have it be 25 milligrams or more, which is small, and have it be vascularized. And I've taught all of my fellows, if you've got a good remnant, you can lean on it. You can put your full weight on that remnant, and it will make your patient eucalcemic. Maybe not right away, but eventually, usually within a year. So that leads us to kind of an absurd conclusion, which is, could you, could you do subtotal parathyroidectomy on everybody? Is that the most bulletproof operation? <laughs> uh it is bulletproof. And a lot of times when there's ambiguity in the OR, I will just default to that. Is that over-operating on a lot of people? It is over-operating sometimes, and that's the counter-argument. All right, so as a summary, and again with the caveat that this is really a foregland excretion group, but I think for the purposes of this discussion, I think it's nice to think about, you know, sort of the hierarchy of needs um, for this operation. And probably the, you know, the base kind of most important is to do you know, cure the patient and to do it safely. So I think you have to think about, you know, how many of these operations you're doing um, and how can you achieve those goals? And I think in a lot of times, um, if you have, you know, a single gland that you see on concordant imaging and you remove that gland and the intraoperative PTH level drops, you will cure that patient. You know, the calcium will be normal and, and you can do that safely. So I think that's kind of the most important hierarchy of needs. And then I think to me, the rest is a little bit more like the cherry on top. You know, can you increase the cure rate by, you know, half a percent? Um, can you decrease the potential ambiguity if the, there's a little bit of uncertainty in the biochemical values? And can you improve your learning curve um, and the learning of your trainees? So to me, all of that is, is lower on the hierarchy of needs and those things can become important um, or can become optional uh, depending on, you know, the most important priority of doing the surgery safely and curing the patient. I think it's a great point, Masha, that if you're a person who doesn't do a lot of parathyroid surgeries, then after you take out the obvious adenoma, you can feel really good about it and, and just stop there. Um, and uh, it's everything else, like you said, just cherry on top. The other thing I want to highlight too, because it, it goes back to our last podcast, is this recurring theme of how much is too much operating. Um, Masha said something like less surgery is usually better. And we talked a lot about that when we thought about genetic testing for endocrine disease. And I just want to highlight that that keeps coming up is when, when should we keep operating and when is less more? I think those are great summaries. Uh, I just want to add a couple points. Uh, I think both approaches are really fine. Uh, and uh, to paraphrase Dr. Dew, he would always say that the parathyroid imaging gives you a place to start, 
But there are two ways that you can end a parathyroid operation. If you have a definitive fall in the PTH, right? So often people say greater than 15, uh, 50% at 10 minutes, but I would add a little wrinkle to that. Sometimes if you have a big spike at the beginning because of manipulation, it can lead to an ominous plateau that may or may not be below 50%. So don't just look at the values, look at the entire curve. Um, so two, two ways to finish, either definitive fall in IRPTH or find all four glands, remove what is abnormal and keep what is normal. Now, here's the kicker in all this. It took me a long time to learn. Um, not all double adenomas, uh, double adenomas are not evenly distributed. Okay. I, I wish somebody had told me that a few thousand cases ago, but double adenomas are rarely ipsilateral. You hear me? So the most common double adenoma situation is double superior. So if you stay on one side, you're going to miss that double superior, which is the most common cause for an experienced surgeon uh, to have a failed parathyroidectomy in the presence of a positive MIBI. All right, let's put this topic to rest for now. And our next debate topic will be going back a little bit. When, when do we do this operation and why do we do this operation? Uh, Max, can you talk a little bit about the indications for surgery? Let's do it. We're all taught back in medical school of a few uh, common symptoms that may present with hyperparathyroidism, bones, stones, groans, and moans. But there are actually many more symptoms that can be attributed to the disease process. When it comes to surgery, however, and indications for surgery, um, only existing bone pain, fragility fractures, or kidney stones count as symptomatic disease. Everybody else is considered to be asymptomatic. In symptomatic disease, we know for sure that patients should benefit from surgery. Um, parathyroidectomy improve, improves bone mineral density, or at least reduces the decline in bone mineral density, and therefore also reduces your risk of fracture. It may also reduce uh, the development of new kidney stones. For patients that have asymptomatic disease, there are some, some international guidelines of when surgery should be recommended, um, although this area is a topic for debate, which we'll touch on in just a little bit. To remind everyone, um, just to go over some of the indications for parathyroidectomy, which are based on the 2014 NIH guidelines, it's a serum, serum calcium level greater than one microgram per deciliter um, above the upper limit of normal a creatinine clearance below 60, patients younger than 50 years of age, bone mineral density that's over 2.5 standard deviations below the normal value of that age range, um, a high urine calcium over 400, presence of kidney stones or nephrocalcinosis, and patient preference or, um, or request. Thanks for that great review, Max. So our first question to set off the debate is, uh, a 70-year-old patient is diagnosed with primary hyperparathyroidism. It was found on routine blood testing. Should she be offered parathyroidectomy or observation? So I think a, a very reasonable starting point is just looking at this 70-year-old woman and assuming she is completely asymptomatic and has no other uh, indications for surgery, uh, just looking to these guidelines, I, I think one could very reasonably ask, She's 70 years old. The cutoff for age is 50 years old. I mean, that's, that's nowhere even close. Uh, what sort of benefit could this 70 year old woman possibly have in her remaining life to make the risk of a nerve injury uh, or any of the other potential complications really worth it? 
I think the best evidence uh, for not operating on patients uh, over 50 years of age is a paper by Shoni Silverberg published in New England Journal of Medicine in 1999, where they followed 52 patients with asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism over the course of 10 years. And at the end of this 10-year observation period, there was no change from the baseline serum calcium level or bone mineral density level at the end. Now, for sure, 27% of these 52 patients did develop a new indication for surgery in that time. Most of them were elevations in serum calcium or new bone mineral density loss. But none of those patients that developed this indication for surgery had a fracture or had a symptomatic kidney stone. So what does that tell you? That means that in most patients, if you just leave them alone, they won't be any different at the end of 10 years, and a quarter of them will, but they will declare themselves, and then you can operate on those patients then. And, you know, when you really think about it, uh, when, if we're saying that we can reduce the risk of a fracture in, in patients by, you know, 3% or so at the end of 10 years, the number needed to treat of that is about 27 um, if you do a parathyroidectomy, what to think about the risks. So we're uploading the risk up front. A failed para risk is probably 1% or 2%. Risk of nerve injury, 0.5%. That's what we all say. And there's always a risk of hematoma and, I guess, a negligible risk of hyper- permanent hypocalcemia. But the number needed harm is about the same, about 28, when you really add up all the probabilities. So, um, again, back to Rivka's point about doing too much, maybe over 50 it really starts to get kind of iffy if we're just doing too much. James, those are great points. Uh, and uh, my first reaction is, in terms of front-loading risk, that's the entire field of surgery. <laughs> you know, we put all our risk into the operation. If you get through the operation, you're going to do great. Uh, you know, so um, you mentioned this really, really important paper by the Columbia Endocrinology Group, Silverberg, Silverberg and Bilzekian, uh, 1999, New England Journal. And this is an important paper for everybody to read. It's a classic and, and really uh, prospective cohort study, non-randomized, uh, but it really, for at least a decade, if not more, shaped how we treat patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. Um, and, uh, you know, they follow these patients for a long time. There was a significant amount of dropout. They continue to publish on the effects of age, uh, long-term bone mineral density, but, but 10 years or more out, they have hardly had any patients left. And that's just the nature of these prospective studies. Um, so what we have on the other side of the literature is retros, uh, controlled observational studies, retrospective studies that sometimes instead of a hundred something patients have 6,000 patients or more, right? Uh, and so we have this tug of war. What is the, what is the better evidence? And I think when we're talking about things like osteoporosis, I mean, do we care about osteoporosis? Only in as much as it leads to fractures. And the issue about fractures is they are rare. So in prospective studies, you can't really study fracture. It's just not possible. It's not frequent enough an event. So then we have to turn to the retrospective literature, right? So would I offer this 70 year old woman parathyroid surgery? Probably yes. Probably yes. She's going to live likely eight years. Uh, of course, I would ask her what's her functional status and, and things like that. If she has a bunch of MIs and stents and a kidney transplant, I would say maybe not. Um, but if she's your typical 70-year-old woman that we see here, um, who would be in good shape, no major comorbidities, and uh, 
likely osteopenia or osteoporosis if they've been exposed if they're that age and obviously postmenopausal and have been exposed to the hyperparathyroid state for a number of years before we met them, which is the typical patient, then I would say that woman has something to gain in terms of the reduced 10-year risk uh, of major fracture, any major fracture, and especially hip fracture. And if we can reduce the upfront risk of surgery, which uh, we can, uh, then I think uh, I think she would gain. Uh, and not just in the osteoporotic patient, I would especially os- uh, operate on the osteopenic patient. And I just want to add, I think that the age criteria is fairly arbitrary. There's not really any data uh, to suggest why age 50 has to be the specific cutoff. I think in this context, age really is just a number. You know, um, as Michael mentioned, the 70-year-old may have cardiac stents and be on anticoagulation or perhaps has already had, you know, fractures and is in a wheelchair. Um, or on the other hand, you know, we're in Los Angeles. We have a lot of patients uh, who are very active, very healthy, and, uh, you know, she may live 20 years. Um, so I think those patients certainly have a, a lot to benefit to help maintain their bone density. James and Vivek, you want to offer a rebuttal? Well, I just want to ask a question of my colleagues here, then what, where do you draw the line then? Um, I think that there's plenty of evidence to show that doctors are terrible at prognosticating how long people have to live uh, in the best of situations. This is like no data. So if you're going to offer it to a seven-year woman with normal bone density, then who are you not going to offer it to? You know, technically uh, an 80-year-old woman, a 90-year-old woman could live 10 years. You're going <laughs> to offer it to a 90-year-old woman, healthy, normal bone density. Well, that's a great question. Uh, just to the listeners, he's visually taunting me <laughs> yeah, and invading my personal space. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you can't see that. Uh, no, that's a great question. Yeah, there is a slippery slope. And there, there definitely is surgical abuse. Like we all know people getting vascular, like femdistals, who just like, why are you flogging these people, right? And we shouldn't, we shouldn't flog people. That's certainly true. Um, you know, if there's a, somebody in their 70s with normal bone mineral density, you could certainly observe them. Right, you could certainly observe them, and, and there's definitely a role for patient preference here. That's really important. Um, and so, in terms of where to draw the line, uh, interestingly, we kind of have that answer now. You know, so so James is taunting me, but he's also helping to set me up to talk about this recent paper by Carolyn Seib, uh, an excellent young faculty member from Stanford, and she looked at a large number of patients with primary hyperparathyroidism, uh, some of whom underwent parathyroidectomy in the Medicare database. A fascinating study, a large number of patients, I don't remember the exact sample size, but it was huge. Um, huge. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't, couldn't help it. Um, and what they found in older patients, patients greater than 65, was that there is a benefit to parathyroidectomy with respect to fracture risk. And the coolest part of this paper is uh, Dr. Saab used a competing risk model, so-called a fine gray competing risk model, where she incorporated the competing risk of death. So if you're 78, let's imagine, and you have a parathyroidectomy, presumably to reduce your fracture risk, but you die of coronary disease one year later, you don't realize the benefit of the parathyroid surgery. So even when you figure in that competing risk of death from other causes, the cutoff for age in terms of life expectancy was three years. And so the author, Saibadal, um, recommended that people be considered for parathyroid surgery but when the life expectancy exceeded three years. So we have advanced mathematics to give us that answer in terms of what you do, do draw the line. 
And I think we should at least mention the neuropsychiatric symptoms that can be associated with hyperparathyroidism. I mean, this is a difficult subject, I think, for us to discuss because we just really never know when these symptoms are related to hyperparathyroidism and if they'll improve after a parathyroidectomy. But, you know, this is really a priority a lot of times for patients in terms of how they feel and why they may be seeking surgery. So the symptoms like fatigue, you know, trouble concentrating, muscle aches, um, these symptoms can be pretty significant for patients. And we do have some data that a lot of these symptoms can improve, um, both short and long-term after surgery. Um, now the data is, you know, retrospective data based on quality of life surveys. Um, but, you know, I think this is, we have to realize that this is in a lot of our patients' minds uh, because a lot of this information is online and they are really hoping uh, to improve after surgery. And I think it's something that we can consider, you know, but we definitely have to be upfront with the patients um, that the, even though there is data that these quality of life symptoms can improve, um, we really never know in an individual patient how much that will be the case. Great point. You know, surgeons are quite divided about this. There's an entire literature about quality of life uh, influences of parathyroid surgery. And, you know, so many patients, just some practical advice for people uh, uh, listening in. Uh, a lot of patients will come into your office and say, I read on the internet that I feel sad and tired sometimes, and that's because of hyperparathyroidism. And I'm going to have parathyroid surgery by you, and I'm going to be 100% better. No. Okay, that, that doesn't exist. Uh, uh, the, the quality of life data... Yeah, it gets better a little bit in anxiety and depressive features. The effect is small. So my advice to you, you know, residents and maybe any junior faculty fellows are listening is try to manage people's expectations. You know, just I just say, you know, if that gets better, it's great. I can't guarantee it. Um, but the real reason we're doing this is to prevent you from having a hip fracture 10 years from now. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the neuropsychiatric symptoms are important to mention. You want to acknowledge that people are, are not feeling well. But don't set them up for a miracle cure because it's really not supported. And just to wrap up the issue of the consensus guidelines for primary hyperparathyroidism, I was on a call with Shani Silverberg, Silverberg recently on this, and she, she started the call by saying parathyroidectomy is never the wrong answer uh, if your patient has hyperparathyroidism, primary hyperparathyroidism. And that's, that's the bottom line. I think most patients should undergo surgery. And the way to interpret those guidelines is... Um, if you meet the guidelines, you certainly should have surgery. And if you don't meet the guidelines, you consider having surgery. You know, I think it's the right answer for most people. I, I think um, for these guidelines, yes, I would love it if parathyroidectomy was all the always the answer in every case. But I think that as we dug through the literature for this pod, it became clear that a lot of these different criteria and we could spend a whole pod talking about it. The evidence behind it uh, is not that strong and deserves more looking into. Uh, just a, a couple of quick highlights. Uh, the, one of the criteria is we should do surgery for people whose GFR is less than 60, thinking we're going to save their kidney function. But uh, a pu paper published by Metzen et al. on uh, endocrine disorders just this year showed that across the entire uh, Danish uh, nationwide uh, database. They looked at all patients who'd had their parathyroidectomy uh, compared to people who were observed. And at one year, the patients who had a parathyroidectomy had a decrease in their GFR and the patients who were observed had no change. Uh, another, the only randomized controlled trial of surgery versus OBS for primary hyperpara was by Bolersev, uh published in 
JCEM in 2007. And at, at the end of two years, again, no change in kidney function. So the whole idea that we're going to save people's kidney function by doing the parathyroidectomy early, especially when the GFR is below 60, I don't know if that's really based on any solid data. Um, same thing for when we're looking at uh, stone risk. Uh, we talked about the previous pod, but we showed that after somebody has kidney stones, we do their parathyroid surgery, that a quarter of them still get kidney stones. And a different paper looked at what happens to calcium excretion uh, after we do parathyroidectomy and patients who had had kidney stones. And the answer is, it doesn't really change a whole lot. Uh, and so I think that we should always be very willing to look further into these criteria. And seems like the only real solid ones is if you have osteoporosis. James is an excellent point, and the audience should know that there were several recent papers published about kidney stones and primary hyperparathyroidism. And, you know, the thing to remember is 8 to 12% of the general population has kidney stones. And about the same percentage of patients with primary hyperparathyroidism has kidney stones. So you think, is it related or not? And then you got to remember, a lot of stones aren't, aren't calcium stones, they're uric acid stones. So why would we expect surgery for hyperparathyroidism to improve that? It, it wouldn't. So these two papers that came out, again, large database papers, one of them showed there was no difference in the kidney stone rate before and after parathyroid surgery. And the other one within Kaiser showed that maybe there was a uh, longer interval to recurrent stones, but it was a slight effect. And I agree with James that there's probably no relationship between hyperparathyroidism and your kidney function. And sneak peek, you know, we are, we are publishing, we're in, uh, wrapping up a paper about this. And basically it only, hyperparathyroidism is only going to affect your kidney function if your calcium is crazy high, like 12. Uh, and that's only like 5% of the people. So when you really look at the evidence behind a lot of the guidelines, it's not that strong. Um, and really, once again, I'm going to return to something I hear, I think I say every day, hyperparathyroidism is a bone disease. Bone is the target organ and those are the outcomes you're going to change with surgery. And if you are interested in hearing more about these studies on hyperparathyroidism and kidney stones, I'll refer you back to our very first podcast where we go into the endocrine surgery meeting abstracts and talk about it more. For our final debate topic, we will be discussing the use of nerve monitor in neck surgery. Max, can you remind our listeners what the nerve monitor is and a little more about it? Absolutely. The recurrent laryngeal nerve, just as a reminder to everyone, is a branch of the vagus nerve, cranial nerve 10, that supplies the intrinsic muscles of the larynx and your vocal cord. The right and the left nerves are not symmetrical. The left nerve travels down and then loops under the, the aortic arch, um, and the right nerve loops under the right subclavian artery before traveling upwards. They both travel alongside the trachea. Now, the gold standard has been visual identification of this nerve to prevent injury. However, the use of the intraoperative nerve monitor as has been found to be a supplement to visual identification of the nerve and gain popularity when surgeons are operating on the thyroid gland. However, its, its utilization in parathyroid surgery has not been as well established. The literature is conflicting whether this um, supplement provides benefit or harm, and we'll hear a little bit more about that in the, in the following debates. If you were performing parathyroid surgery, would you recommend using this nerve monitor or not? 
we, we have a lot of patients who come to us and ask this very question, are you going to use a nerve monitor? And it seems nearly reckless to a lot of patients to hear from a surgeon that they plan not to use a nerve monitor. In that case, how are you possibly monitoring the nerve? How, how do you know if you've injured the nerve? One of the fundamental premises for determining whether or not this is going to provide you benefit can be the presupposition whether or not you are ever okay with performing a tracheostomy for a patient. And for parathyroid surgery, it may be a little less relevant uh, than thyroid surgery in this case. But if your fundamental premise is that it is never okay to perform a tracheostomy for a patient, then it certainly makes sense to need or want to use a nerve monitor. You can stop the surgery on one side if you have an injury and come back after the nerve is recovered to the other side or come back with more help and be more careful on the other side. That's right. And I know, I already know, I already know what Michael and Masha are going to say. They're going to whine and say, oh, it's never been shown to reduce nerve injury. I don't need it. I've been doing this for a decade without it. He's rolling his eyes at us. (laughs) The the, the honest answer is, is that we already have these machines. They're already widely available and used for thyroid surgery. And so if you're going to be doing the parathyroid uh, dectomy, I don't see the reason why not to use it. True, it may not help you reduced nerve injury rates has not been shown to do that. Uh, it will tell you the health of one nerve, uh, as Vivek said, so that on the off chance that you do get uh, some kind of traction injury or something else happens to one side, then you won't go and do a foregland expiration. You'll stay to the one side and avoid something catastrophic, even though that's rare. Also teach you how to use a nerve monitor so that when you are doing a reoperative parathyroidectomy in your, uh, you know, hacking through scar tissue, then you'll be experienced and know how to use it. Um, and I think those are the you know, best reasons to use a nerve monitor for these cases. Well, one of the final points I, I want to make uh, regarding using technology in endocrine surgery, which, which is one of my passions, one of the greatest benefits that can be found with technology in endocrine surgery is using it to democratize endocrine surgery. When we talk about the majority of these sorts of cases in the U.S. being performed by non-high-volume surgeons, perhaps these are the folks who would benefit the most from such adjunctive technology. In my opinion, so I do use the monitor, James, rolling your eyes at me, and the number one, I'll tell you why, the number one reason for me to use a nerve monitor is to make you happy, man. (laughs) Okay, And, And even when you're not there, okay, I do use the nerve monitor because I dissect out the nerve, I touch it with my right angle, and then I say, boop, 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 there's the nerve monitor. (laughs) There are a lot of adjuncts in surgery that I think can be useful, but I don't think anything replaces the basic understanding and knowledge of anatomy. Uh, And in this case, it's knowing where the recurrent laryngeal nerve is located in the tracheoesophageal groove and where it may be at risk during your dissection. Um, I think if you have a clear understanding of that, which is mandatory before anybody performs a neck surgery, then particularly for parathyroid surgery, the risk of a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, even temporary, is very low. Um, So when you mentioned, you know, the risk of tracheostomy, I mean, I think that's that is so extremely rare um, for a first-time 
uh, you know, uh, neck uh, surgery for a parathyroidectomy is extremely rare. And it's also possible for the technology to fail. You know, you, you, you're, you're relying on the nerve monitor and you don't realize that, um, you know, maybe the tube has moved or something has happened. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that when the risk of an injury is so extremely low, um, then the benefit of using this technology becomes very marginal. Um, I do think that your argument to be able to use it for more complex cases, like a redo uh, neck expiration, that's a good point. You know, if you never use a nerve monitor, then you're not going to know how to troubleshoot it and you won't really be feel comfortable using it in a more difficult case. I think that's a reason to consider just using the nerve monitor occasionally. Um, but I don't think it has to be for your routine, straightforward parathyroidectomies. Um, and in general, those cases are very efficient, they're fast, and adding the complexity, potentially the cost, of using the nerve monitoring, I think um, is not worth it in a lot of times um, if you have trained and are comfortable doing those surgeries without the use of a neck of a nerve monitor. But you know, the thing is, is that I don't think everybody's going to be doing a bajillion parathyroid surgeries, and so I think when we spread this, you know, nationwide, it just makes it safer for everyone. That you know, you're always going to find yourself in weird cases non-recurrent recurrent nerves. Uh, just last week, Masha and I had to bovi out part of the thyroid to get out the intrathyroidal parathyroid adenoma. And so you're all going to have situations where if you don't have, you know, nerve vision already, this is going to help you. It's going to help you find the nerve earlier, dissect on it less. Um, and I just want to point out the, the gross hypocrisy here of <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Foregland expiration doing the most <laughs> but won't do hooking up the nerve monitor. <laughs> but in that case, uh, James, that you're talking about, we had the nerve dissected out and could see it very clearly along its path. So I'm not sure why having that extra beep of the machine, you know, made that any safer. It makes you feel good. <laughs> I, I can confirm it does make you feel good. And, you know, those times I use the nerve monitor, I learned something. You know, I'll admit I learned something because, you know, I get little beeps here and there to say that I'm, I don't know, I'm touching something that's causing some transmittal. And, uh, you know, I, I should, I, I may regret saying this, but there are cases where I'm operating with Vivek without you and we have the nerve monitor and I give Vivek one touch of the nerve monitor. I'm like, oh, you think that's a nerve? Okay, you, you're one touch. And he has to be 100% sensitive and 100% specific <laughs> just for learning purposes. So give it a run. Boop, and it's over. So, so like, like half a, half a nanosecond of glory for how much money and how much trouble and how much I'll turn that thing down. Or, oh, is the Bobby silencer on? And oh, I think you got a false positive. Oh, you got a false negative. Like, so for the, for the uh, trainees in the audience that never used a nerve monitor, it's not magic. It's got all sorts of problems. You know, you got to troubleshoot it and it's got all sorts of false positive beeps and the amplitude and the false negatives and you're wondering, you know, if it's a positive signal, you wonder if it's true. If it's an absence of signal, you really wonder if it's true. So, uh, you know, it's not perfect. And it's, it's a fair amount of uh, kind of messing around with it. Uh, I agree that if you're going to use it, you've got to use it with some regularity. You've got to swing that bat so that when you really, you've got to swing that bat regularly. So when you really need to have a hit, then you have to be comfortable with the technology, you know. But yeah, I use it sometimes. I wouldn't use it for the, for the routine parathyroidectomy case. Um, something we've, a topic that's been recurrent today that the, that I that I notice is is it okay um, for the benefit of a small number of patients? Is it a, okay to in, 
impose a burden of a little bit of additional care or surgery or technology to impose that burden on a large number of patients. Uh, I wonder that, about that all the time, you know, when it comes to overoperating on foregoing explorations, when it comes to using the nerve monitor a hundred times to help, like, I don't know, maybe half of one person, uh, you know, and, and we face these ethical challenges uh, in many ways in surgery. But I do agree there are some complications that, if they're at all preventable, should almost be, you know, never events, or they're so important that anything you can do to prevent that is worth it. So the possibility of tracheostomy, permanent hypoparathyroidism, which really sucks. So if there are things that you think in your practice can reduce those risks, I think that that is important because those complications are really significant. Thanks to our great faculty for a great discussion and debate. Um, We want to spend the next few minutes here just summarizing some key takeaway points from each case. To sum up our first debate on the minimally invasive parathyroidectomy versus a foregland exploration, both operations, when done well, will result in high rates of surgical cure, which is a normalization of the patient's serum calcium. With the advancement in imaging, such as the parathyroid CT, and a surgical trend towards less is more, in cases of a likely single adenoma, minimally invasive parathyroidectomy may be the operation I choose. But at the same time, visualization of all parathyroid glands with removal of any abnormal tissue is time-tested and safe in an experienced surgeon's hand. To summarize our debate on what guidelines are applicable for when to do parathyroidectomy, uh, I think we can all agree that if you meet the established guidelines, of course, parathyroid surgery is the right answer. However, if there's any question about the guidelines, The surgeon just needs to consider the benefit for each individual patient, including their choice and what what their goals are, as well as other medical problems and life expectancy. And lastly, our discussion on the use of nerve monitor and parathyroid surgery. The literature remains conflicting, and it seems that this is largely going to be due uh, this, this decision may be ultimately up to the surgeon, although patients will often be asking you about it. Um, at the end of the day, visual identification is still the gold standard, and you should be aware of the possible complications of using a nerve monitor, such as false positives or false negatives, and uh, to always bank on your fundamentals of anatomy first, and then use the nerve monitor as a supplement. And I'll reassure everyone that even after this heated debate, Michael and James are still friends. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone, and dominate the day! (laughs) Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.